Hello and welcome to Life Itself, a podcast by Faith House Manhattan. Today we're very happy to have Parker Palmer, who is a Quaker theologian and overall just amazing guy, come in and speak with us about uh, his tradition, his practices, and the history of Quakerism that really is uh, quite inspiring. so beautiful and valuable and truthful about Quaker tradition? Well, it's a great question, Samir, and thank you for your kind words. Um, So the three I'd want to name are these, and I'll just name them briefly, and then we can plunge in at more depth. The number one, I think, is, is the Quaker affirmation that there is that of God in every person. Um, It's sometimes named as the inner teacher, the inner light, the indwelling Christ. Um, but it's it's this notion that within each of us, there is a voice of truth and love and, and justice, a reliable voice um, that we have direct access to. So one of the, one of the big Quaker principles that, that flows from this is that uh, we don't need intermediaries in the form of, of clergy. Uh, or creed, or a lot of structure, uh, or, or ritual, uh, to uh, to connect us with with that, the voice of God, with, with with the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, but we can go there directly ourselves. Uh, there's an old Quaker joke that I've always liked, which illuminates this in a kind of humorous way, where the Quakers say, uh, "We've been accused of abolishing the clergy." but it's not true. We abolished the laity. Um, And of course, the the notion is that that everyone in the Quaker community is a minister of some sort, and we don't depend on someone who's specially set aside Mm -hmm. as a clergy person. So that's the sacred in everybody. It is the sacred in everybody, and it's it's alive and well, and it speaks. Um, there's a, a related thing here that Quakers call continuing revelation. Quakers value the Bible, but they don't think that it, that it stopped being written, as it were, uh, when the canon was formed up and frozen into place. Um, they believe that the revelation continues to this day and is found in, in many sources, this notion that God God has not stopped speaking. So there's a whole lot of things to talk about under that first point um, that are about the Quaker conception of the inner life and the and that of God within each person. Mm-hmm. The, the, second, the second principle is equally important. So if you can have two things at the center of something, then, then Quakers do have uh, two two. two Two things at the at the center of their of their faith and practice, and and the second thing is community, um, and it's the emphasis here is on <clears throat> communities of discernment, of sorting and sifting and 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 winnowing the wheat from the chaff. You know, we believe that everyone has the voice of God within them, but we're we know that that we all have other voices within us as well. We have a voice of ego, a voice of greed, a voice of pride, a 
the voice of envy, a voice of self-inflation, a voice of self-deprecation. And there's a critical question to be asked when, when someone thinks they're in touch with that of God within them. And the question is, is that really God speaking? Or is it some other voice, the voice of fear or whatever? And so the Quaker community functions as in a very particular way, which I want to talk about in some detail later, as a, as a community of discernment, as a place where people can sort and sift among the, the voices that they're hearing um, without being told what the right way is, they, they have a chance um, to, to sort it out and to make a careful discernment in community about the, the, the source of what they're hearing and the, tr the validity and ultimately the truth of what they're hearing. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a second. So, so Parker, th these, these two seem to me like I can't help, but I, when I, when I was doodling here when, you, when I'm listening to you uh, uh, to focus myself to in your words, and I, and, I, and, I, and I draw a circle with this yin and yang sign, uh, sign kind of a thing. Uh, in that, that is one penetrates the other and one uh, informs the other, and these two things are in perfect dynamic tension with each other. Yes, I think that's that's a beautiful way of putting it, Samir. Uh, a word that I often use to describe this is the word paradox, and, and of mm -hmm. course that yin and yang symbol is is a symbol of of a paradox of apparent opposites actually cohering with one another and, and strengthening one another. Um, you know, everybody who's I think who's wise and experienced in the ways of, of, uh, of, of the spiritual journey um, ha has been on to this, this paradox in one way or another. What's coming to mind at the moment is something Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his, his book, Life Together, which really struck me the first time I read it and has stayed with me. Bonhoeffer said, let the person who cannot be alone beware of being in community and let the person who cannot be in community beware of being alone. Uh, and so what he was saying really was that health or wholeness depends on holding together this paradox of solitude and community. And when we, when we let that paradox go, we fall out into a certain kind of pathology on one side or the other of it. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can fall into radical individualism, which is, uh, which makes you part of the problem, not part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Or you can fall into this sort of losing your identity in the crowd or the group or the institution, which is also highly problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, so you're exactly and, and, and I would say, I would say, you know, there's also a, a, a third way to, to, how would I say, to, um, not embrace this, but to maybe fail to embrace this uh, than that human experience. Because a lot of people, they neither know how to be in a, alone anymore, uh, and they neither know how to fully belong to a community with and it, all the muck and glory that it, it's part of the belonging to a community. So it's like a halfway living into both. It's like, sort of like continual 
all of us have so many friends, you know, on Facebook and all of that. So that those boundaries are being sort of shifted and people are neither fully alone nor fully in the community often. And so this is an invitation to, it's not 50, 50 sort of thing. It's hundred, hundred. Yeah. That, that's a great way to put it. Right. It, it is hundred, hundred. And, and, and that's the nature of paradox, isn't it? That you don't, it's not either or, it's both and. Yes, um, and both are distinct, distinctive skills. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think, I think you're, you, you rightly say that there are a lot of people who are sort of halfway in to both um, the inner life and the life of community. We have a lot of sort of cheap substitutes for both these days, which which really don't don't do the trick. So, at its best, Quaker tradition is a, a highly disciplined form of inner journeying and a highly disciplined form of of being in in community, uh, which mm -hmm. is which are, both of which are things we want to talk about as this time goes on. I'll just just to complete my list of three topics or three headlines. I think the third thing I'd like to lift up <clears throat> about the Quaker community, you you hinted at in your introduction, Samir, when you when you said that although Quakers are few in number and there are only seventy two thousand of them uh, in the United States, um, they've always been disproportionately present in the great social issues of our time. So if you look at the history of the anti-war movement or of the civil rights movement or of the reconciliation movements of various sorts, um, the women's movement. Uh, in all of these, uh, Quakers have had a remarkable presence. Um, one of the things we can talk about when we get there is the fact that the Quaker community was the first religious community in the United States to free its uh, enslaved human beings en masse and they did that 80 years before the Civil War was fought. Um, and, and so I'm not aware of any other religious community which freed enslaved human beings until after the Civil War. And I think, mm -hmm. I think that piece of, of history is not only uh, a significant fact about the Quaker tradition, but it also indicates the depth of, of their engagement with the world which, which comes a lot from this reliance on the inner teacher and the communal engagement with what Quakers would call uh, a leading from God, uh, mm -hmm. from that voice of God within. So mm -hmm. we can think as we go along here, Samir, mm -hmm. about these three things, the, the inner teacher, the, the Quaker, the community that's held in paradox with that, and how that relates to this movement from the inner life and the communal life out into engagement with the world. And it seems yeah, like, um, is... so I was gonna say, it, it just also it seems powerful that understanding that the outside engagement is, is a two-way street, that that engagement can change a society at large in the ways that you've talked about, but also on some level probably uh, also impacts the community internally and individually as well. Absolutely. And, and so it's, it's part of the test of both individual leadings and um, whether the community is, is on track. 
uh, it's part of the test to go out into the world and <clears throat> see if, if, if you can make a difference, um, you know, uh, based on or evoking the better angels of our nature, as Lincoln mm -hmm. called them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is fascinating. I'm still, this, this 80 years that you just mentioned is still uh, uh, kind of uh, ricocheting in my head that how is that possible? How is it possible that somebody who is not pushed into change actually chooses to do it uh, in a way before it becomes sort of obvious uh, to most people? And well, there's, there's, an, there's actually an amazing story there that I'd be glad to tell. And if now's the time to tell it, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, so um, 20 years before Quakers made this decision to free their slaves as a community. And so we're now talking 100 years before the Civil War. There was a man named John Woolman, who was a member of a Quaker meeting in what's now New Jersey. Um, he had a very strong leading from God, as, as he put it, that uh, slavery was not only an abomination, but that it was utterly contradictory, and of course it is, to the Quaker affirmation that there is that of God in every person. Uh, it, was very mm -hmm. clear, it was very clear to Woolman that you cannot hold a belief in the divine nature of every human being and hold slaves at the same time. Um, but it, it, that wasn't so clear to his fellow Quakers a hundred years before the Civil War. Um, because th their livelihood depended on enslaved human beings, which, of course, was the case with the American economy mm -hmm. at the time. Yes. So Woolman went to his local meeting. His, the, the, the local meeting in Quaker parlance is, is like the, the church on the corner, the local congregation. And he said, friends, uh, this is my leading from God, and I bring it to you for communal testing. Well, they tested and tested and could not reach what Quakers call the, a sense of the meeting, by which they mean a sense that is informed by the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we now know this as consensus, but the, the secular process called consensus differs in some significant ways from the Quaker way of doing business, which technically is called meeting for worship on the occasion of business. And so doing business and praying for guidance and discernment are, are intertwined like, like a DNA molecule. Well, in, in, in Quaker decision-making, you can't make a decision one way or another until you have achieved what we would call consensus, which either means everybody agreeing with it or... Um, uh, or, or a few people may be disagreeing somewhat, but, but not uh, standing in the way of mm -hmm. the rest of the group. There are certain there are Quaker processes by which you can stand aside and you know be recorded as not in agreement, but not feeling so strongly that you want to block the group's the group's motion. Well, Woolman's. Monthly meeting, his local church could not agree um, on the rightness of what would seem 
today to be clearly, obviously right. And and they they talked about this for months and months and months and couldn't reach consensus. And so they said to, to John Woolman, and this is quite an amazing part of the story, we, well, while we can't agree with you right now, we have no question that this leading is totally authentic for you. Um, you know, that you are speaking the truth as you have heard it. We, we just don't embrace the same truth. But because of the integrity we perceive in you, and Woolman was living a life that was totally independent of, of slavery, he refused to benefit from anything that slavery was in any way involved with. Mm -hmm. um, the, the meeting said, we will support your family while you take leave from time to time from your work as a tailor to travel up and down the East Coast and preach your, your message to other friends' meetings and we'll see where it goes. So for 20 years, Woolman wow. has traveled. Wow. <laughs> for 20 years, he traveled up and down the East Coast and, and it's, a, it's a remarkable story. So he would visit, at this time, of course, he'd visit a remote farmhouse frequently. He would sit at table with the family to, to discuss his, the burden that he was carrying, the moral, spiritual burden. But if the, if the meal were, had, were prepared or served by slaves, he would fast. He, he wouldn't leave the table, but he, he would not partake of food that involved mm -hmm. labor. And, and so this man with total consistency for 20 years carried this message until Quakers became so profoundly convinced of the rightness of what he was saying and as proved partly by his persistence mm -hmm. that they reached consensus across the board, all monthly meetings, all local churches, 80 years before the Civil War, now is the time to to, to free our slaves. We are commanded to do so by God. And there's even a, 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 a document from a very early Congress that's now on display at Capitol Hill where Quakers are petitioning the US government uh, to rid itself of this grievous and immoral practice to declare it illegal again, 80 years before the Civil War uh -huh. was fought. So it's a, you know, people talk to me sometimes about, so you, you guys make decisions by, by consensus, but that's such a slow process. And there are, so many, there are so many things that need to be done urgently. And I said, well, you know, you want to talk about urgency? How's 80 years before the Civil War in uh -huh. abolishing slavery? Um, I think it's, you know, quite a remarkable. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's just like on so many levels. And I remember you mentioned woman in your book, uh, Healing the Heart of Democracy. And those of you who are, who are uh, listening, you know, check it out. Uh, a great, great uh, expansion on all of these concepts. Very, very applicable to where, where we are today. And that's what I would like to take this conversation. Um, going back to these three um, treasures you have put before us. Um, 
help us make a connection between a contemporary, you know, probably Western person who is listening to this, uh, but maybe it's internationally as well. Uh, you know, what do we, how can we take this into our, our diverse and maybe even secular lives, these three values? Uh, how can we uh, check them out through practice uh, instead of through understanding, you know? Right. right. Well, let's take, let's take them one at a time. I think the first one, uh, which has to do with the inner journey of the inner life, is actually one that um, a lot of people are in touch with and experimenting with these days under the guise of meditation, various forms of contemplation, various individual spiritual disciplines uh, that um, help people get in touch with that still small voice within themselves. They, they, may, not, they may not call it the voice of God, and, and that's all right. Uh, different traditions name it in, in different ways. Um, even Socrates, uh, who in many ways is the founder of the great tradition of secular humanism, um, had this notion that the unexamined life is not worth living, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, right there is an affirmation that we have a capacity to, to take an inner journey and examine our own lives, even if it's not, even if we don't fly a religious or spiritual flag over what we're doing. So I think I think that this notion of, of um, listening for your own truth, for your own uh, leadings, is, is not a foreign notion to a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people are using it, are using meditation, for example, to find solid ground in a world of shifting sands, um, mm -hmm. to, to find safe, strong places in which to stand in a, a, in a dangerous uh, world. Um, and, and so that one, I think, is one that, that people recognize. Uh, I would say that <clears throat> one difference between the Quaker tradition and um, the, the widespread interest in meditation is that meditation is often done on an individual solitary basis. Um, not always that way. There are, there are groups in, in various forms of Buddhism that gather to meditate communally. But the Quakers always, it's not that Quakers don't practice individual meditation, but the central form in their tradition, in Quaker tradition, uh, is the meeting for worship in which a group of people gather in silence for, let's say, an hour or so, and and in that silence they listen, and occasionally, when they hear something that um, that they believe to be um, uh, worthy of being spoken, that they believe to have come from some deeper source than their own ego or their own opinions, uh, they will rise in the silence to speak. Quakers call it vocal ministry. And typical Quaker meeting for worship, uh, three or four people may speak in the course of an hour. 
And these messages, this vocal ministry may be very brief. It may be just a minute or two, or it may go on for as long as four or five minutes. But there's nothing that anyone from uh, the, the mainline churches would recognize as a sermon. There are instead testimonies, these prayers, these questions, these affirmations, these hopes and dreams that people are laying out their struggles uh, and fears as well as um, their blessings. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what happens, I for me, Samir, in a communally based meditation of, of that sort where, where people are occasionally speaking out what they're hearing is something very different from what what goes on in individual meditation. Mm -hmm. You're sitting in your living room with your eyes closed, perhaps chanting a mantra or, or focusing on an object, um, you know, practicing simply uh, paying attention, which is a very valuable practice. But <clears throat> what happens in a Quaker meeting for worship is, is different because it's amazing the number of times out after 15 or 20 minutes of silence and you're inwardly wrestling with something, somebody will stand on the other side of the room and speak a word that you need to hear with, with what you're wrestling with. And of course, no words have been exchanged uh, so that, that, other, that the speaker would know what was going on inside of you. But there's some kind of connectivity. There's some kind of human connectivity that happens in a meeting for worship that always, um, that always uh, rather amazes me. Mm -hmm. So it, for me, it, it, the, the simple step uh, in response to your question is, well, lots of people in, in this world are already practicing uh, forms of silent reflection. Um, but it's a step up to take that uh, into a community mm -hmm. where you, you start to weave threads of reflection together um, with no one person leading the way. Um, it's rather a kind of collective wisdom that begins to emerge as different voices get heard and different threads uh, get, get woven together. It, people might be interested to know that uh, the official name of, of, the, of the Quakers is the Religious Society of Friends. They, but Quaker was the name that stuck because in the early years, um, outsiders would look in and they, they would see people quaking. And, and quaking was a sign that something was being laid upon you by God that needed to be spoken. And, and Quakers will still talk about this, this inner sense of quaking that says to them, this, I need to stand and, and say this, no matter how vulnerable uh, it, it may feel. And so Quakers in their typical way said, okay, here's a derogatory name, Quaker, being, mm -hmm. laid, being laid on us by the outer world. We'll just embrace it as our own. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, which, yeah. Is, which is the essence in some ways the, uh, related to the heart of nonviolence. I, yeah, uh, I heard. Go for it, Samir. I, I was just recently heard uh, a, a friend of mine who didn't get a visa here 
stay in the United States. We're going to move back to Holland. And he gave me a card. And in the card, it said, and we really grieved that he had to leave, he and his, his wife, uh, both of them. And he says, when they take you out of town, they chase you out of town, go in the front and make it look like a parade. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. That's that's the Quaker spirit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what that, that reminds me. But this this is beautiful. Uh, 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 those of listeners here and and me myself, whenever I imagine this, it's just so full of it's this. Um, it resonates deeply with this need to be in silence together. Sometimes I experience that with my wife in the evening, uh, you know, kids go to bed and then we're in a kitchen, it's getting dark. None, none of us wants to get up and turn on the light and we are just sitting there and, and it's quiet. And, and we just acknowledge that it is enough just to be together, mm-hmm. enough to breathe. And if we feel moved, we say something. If we don't, we don't. It doesn't have to be always go, go, go. It's just acknowledging this, this, this mystery of, of just being alive and having gratitude for that and being open uh, in each other's presence versus yes. sort of communal experience of being a person. Uh, it's just, a, just amazing um, how, how that potent that is. And I'm thinking of moments when we feel that perhaps driving subway here and sometimes i'm in the subway frank you can attest you are here in new york it's one of the most interesting places you can be in <laughs> and there's these long stops and sometimes nobody's dancing or singing or panhandling or something you know nothing's going on and there's this rhythm of the train going and everybody is just everybody is just content and everybody is like, we're in this together, underground in this metal snake. It's ridiculous, but we are all moving along. And it's great that our, our, we, we pass by and share this moment. Uh, what, what Quakers do seems it, it value this and make sure that no week passes without that kind of a soul stop. Right, uh, right exactly. Person. Exactly so. And, and I might also add that in many Quaker meetings, um, there are midweek gatherings of a smaller sort for meeting for worship. And there's an, actually an old Quaker phrase, it goes back a couple hundred years, that, that reflects what, what you and your wife do, Samir, where, where two or three or four people are, are together. And one of them will say in, in, the, in the Quaker way, um, let's, this is an old-fashioned phrase, let's take an opportunity. And what that means is an opportunity to sit in the presence for, for 5, 10, 20 minutes and just, uh, you know, feel that presence in a way mm-hmm. that we won't and can't when we're, when we're chatting with each other. And that's actually the, can, something that can be done on a park bench mm-hmm. uh, or <clears throat> even in a workplace. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's take an opportunity um, mm-hmm. and just have that, the refreshment of a pause in the, in the face of something yeah. larger, larger yeah. than ourselves. And I actually, I actually think that, um, I actually think that silence, one of the things that silence does for us is it, it performs that critical function of letting us get in touch with and connected with something 
larger than ourselves, which which is so important in human lives that are that are in this culture anyway dominated by a sense of self-importance and you know mastery and mm -hmm. and egocentrism. <clears throat> so I've uh, for a long time when people have asked me so how do you define spirituality? And I've said, well, spirituality is any way a person has of, of responding to the eternal human yearning to be connected with something larger than my own ego. Mm -hmm. um, because if all you're connected with is your own ego, it's a very lonely and a very dangerous mm -hmm. place. And, and I like that definition because it's an open definition some of the ways people have gotten connected with something larger than their own ego are very bad ways, even evil ways. Mm -hmm. You can make a good case that the Third Reich was driven by that kind of, quote, spiritual impulse. And, and what they got connected with that, that filled this great vacuum of meaning in, in their lives, um, you know, was the, the, the evil myth of Aryan superiority and the great Germanic tradition, which, you know, would lead to the thousand year Reich. And we don't have to remind each other of the enormous evil, devastating evil that that caused. But, but it's equally true that people have gotten out of, out of that spiritual yearning, they've become connected with very life-giving things. Um, I think it's something we need to talk about this this definition of spirituality because you know we all need help discerning what's life giving and what's death dealing. Mm -hmm. It isn't it's always obvious. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. For example, that to to get connected uh, with the, the tradition of American individualism, you know the 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 self sufficient individualist who makes it all happen by himself or herself, it's not always obvious to people that that's, that is, that puts you at risk of connecting with something evil, which is, which is a failure of compassion and a lack of care for your brothers and sisters in the, in the, in the society. Mm -hmm. and instead, it's uh, American individualism has touted as some kind of, you know, noble choice made by strong people. We ought to be talking about these things in terms of the spiritual dimension of things that don't present themselves as spiritual, because, because they are often what, what people attach themselves to as they try to find out how to answer this, this yearning that we've had from the beginning of time mm -hmm. yeah I, I think this is really fascinating and it sort of leads into uh, I think a question that puts um, perhaps these traditions into context of time and that is knowing both this this relationship between the inside and the outside of the person in the community and also this use of silence as a way to sort of create that space and that invitation or that opportunity um, how has that changed as the world has changed? Uh, I mean, for instance, I imagine what silence means to us today is very different than maybe even 50 years ago. Um, between, you know, in New York, they say we see an average of 1,200 ads per day. You pass an average of 3,000 people on the street. Um, you know, we're sort of, 
both intellectually and an actual physical reality um, constantly in a, a, a mod podge of, of information and data and color and experience um, that would be unimaginable, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, and so um, how, if the tradition has stayed somewhat constant while the, the world has changed, what is, how is that relationship between the, the two change and has it actually changed the meaning of those practices due to this, this new context? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great question, and I think it's one that a lot of thoughtful people are trying to answer in a world of, of constant noise. Uh, and of course, the noise, <laughs> as, as we all know, the, the noise isn't just outside of us, it's inside of us as well. Um, <clears throat> because of all that's happening around us and all that's available electronically online, um, we're, we're constantly buzzing inwardly. Um, with a whole lot of static um, and messages of many sorts, some of them death-dealing, some of them life-giving. So uh, I, I think that I think that there is um, there is to some extent a, a change in the environmental circumstances that, that that make that forces us to become much more intentional about seeking. Places of silence, um, times of silence, and communities of, of, of silence. Um, it, it doesn't happen perhaps as naturally or as easily uh, as it as it did um, 100, 200, 300 years ago. On the other hand, um, I uh, I read a lot of of Taoist literature. I'm, I'm fascinated by the religions of ancient China. And it's amazing to me how many of the poems or stories of Shuang Tzu, for example, or Lao Tzu, um, read in a very contemporary manner about uh, the need to be highly disciplined in, in seeking um, uh, perhaps not physical silence, which was easier to, or, or auditory silence, which was easier to find in an agrarian society than it is in New York City, mm -hmm. but, but, but seeking a sense of, of centeredness, of inner quietude, um, because the, the inner noise in the human self seems to have been pretty constant um, over, over long, long periods of time. Shuangzu, um, Lao Tzu, these Taoist teachers of ancient China lived in a radically different society than our own, feudal, agrarian, etc., cetera, um, unmechanized, uh, certainly not wired. Um, and and, and, and yeah, um, they're, they're struggling all the time um, to find that, that inner quietude. So, you know, it, it's about discipline, and the discipline is partly about having a place and a time and some people, if that's your path, uh, to, to share that place and time with you where the silence can be highly intentional. But it, it's also partly about, about practicing inner disciplines that allow you to notice how much noise you're generating in your own head and in your own heart and to find ways of 
of disconnecting from that, um, of turning that down or maybe even turning it off. I, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. Madison is not New York City, but it's, it's a good sized city with a lot of stuff going on from political to, to academic to cultural and, and, and social, racial, economic, and so forth. And uh, feel very lucky for the fact that within walking distance here, I have some pretty good sized tracts of forest preserve um, where I can get out into the trees. I can never totally get away from the noise of traffic. There's always some sort of, of automotive movement that's audible even in the middle of the woods. But somehow in the presence of a lot of trees and a slow walk uh, on a nice day, or even in the middle of winter, um, that, that noise within me begins to recede, but I have to be intentional about choosing it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Mark, I was going to ask you, uh, I really noticed uh, when, when, when you were introducing this, you used this word that this voice is reliable and that this voice, um, um, you have a direct access. So once the noise uh, subs subsides, once the space is created, and then there's this um, empty space, uh, and then voice comes. Um, is it the voice of intuition? H how do we, how do we learn to, to trust that voice? To to expect it, to hear it. Uh, yeah, just to to be in expectancy of it too, uh, not dismiss it as a part of the noise. Uh, I remember when I was at Columbia, I was a class on something, and there was this um, teacher there, his nephew of Albert Einstein, and he came in and he says, and all of our students are looking at him like he is a little demigod, you know, and, and he said, uh, don't ask me questions for this lecture. And, and we are like, it's not good to ask questions. And we are like, what? <laughs> we are the university. Of course, it's good to ask questions. He says, well, think twice. Maybe you do have an answer. Mm. Uh, and he, he was basically saying, do not relegate your inner wisdom to somebody else. Do not, do not externalize it. Do not uh, disclaim mm -hmm. it. Sort of uh, your inner confidence there. Of that that all of us can, can learn. Right. Well, I, I think that's a great story, Samir, because it's so countercultural, isn't it? Um, yes. One of the reasons that we don't trust what we hear from within is that most of us have grown up in institutions, both educational and religious institutions, that, that treat us as empty vessels to be filled up with someone else's wisdom and knowledge and insight. Mm. Um, you know, that's why we do a lot of education and a lot of religion as we do. There's an expert who, who talks to us and tells us what the deal is. And, and actually, and you know this as well as I do, because you work with, with clergy of various sorts, there are a lot of very thoughtful clergy who want to say to their congregations the same thing that 
your professor at Columbia said to you, but when they try to go that route, when they try to get people to turn to their own inner wisdom, the people in the pews get mad at them. <laughs> and they say, look, you're the, you're the person with the theological education. You're the, people, you're the person who knows the score. So just tell us, <laughs> you know, do our religion for us. What do you, that's what we're paying you for. And, and, and so it's a, I think leaders who want to, to, turn, to turn people towards their own inner wisdom, there's a real struggle involved in just helping folks get past that, that deformation that comes from having been raised in institutions that have said, no, you don't have an inner, an inner teacher. You, you, you just need to remember what the experts are saying. So, you know, that's a, that's a piece of discernment that some of us need to do for ourselves. And we need to ask ourselves about, you know, to what extent have I been deformed by that culture of external dependency? And to what extent is, do I need to take a first step of just listening to myself long enough uh, to understand that I do have answers within me that, that, you know, maybe they're in some book or maybe they're in someone else's mind, but they, they're meaningful only when they arise from within me. Um, there is a Quaker practice called a clearness committee, which is 350 years old. And that's, that's a practice where a person with a problem um, calls together a small group, five or six people from the local meeting or church and in a, in a very disciplined way over a two and a half hour period, um, puts, first puts this, the problem or issue before these people who all, who all know what they're doing. They've been trained in this method. They're disciplined in this method. And after 15 or 20 minutes of presentation for the next the problem presentation, for the next two hours, the five or six people in that group are forbidden to speak to that person in any way, except to ask an honest, open question, mm -hmm. whose intent is to help that person listen more deeply to his or her inner teacher. Um, part of the training for this process is, is to state a negative rule that, that applies for that whole two plus hours. And that rule is no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. And, and if you think about it, those four things, fixing, saving, advising, and correcting, are the things we most often try to do when someone comes to us with a problem. Why do, why do we try to do them? Because we don't believe that that person has a voice of wisdom in him or herself that has the answer, however deeply buried it may be. Well, here's a Quaker practice that says, you have the answer, and if you're willing to sit in that in that crucible of, of not being told other people's answers for two hours, you're going to start hearing things from within you, helped along by honest, open questions. And, and it turns out that honest, open questions are really very, very difficult to ask because we've been trained, all of us have been trained to ask questions that are really little bits of advice 
uh, in disguise. Mm. One of my favorite examples when I'm teaching this clearness committee process, and I, people are saying, well, what's an honest open question? I'll say, have you thought about seeing a therapist is not an honest open question. <laughs> you know, it's a perfect example of a question that where, where I'm really trying to say to the person, you ought to see a therapist. Um, and, and that doesn't help. Um, that fills that person with my own, uh, quote, wisdom about what he or she ought to do. But if I ask a question like, has anything like what you just told us about ever happened to you before? Uh, if so, could you tell a story about it? And so if the person has a story to tell, they, they tell it. And I might follow up after I've listened to the story by saying, um, was there anything that you learned in that experience that might be helpful to you now? Well, those are honest, open questions. Has anything like this ever happened to you before? And was there anything you learned that might help you now? They're, they're honest and open because I can't possibly sit there as the question asker thinking, you know, I know the right answer question. I sure hope you give it to me. Whereas if I ask you, have you thought about seeing a therapist? I'm desperately hoping that you'll say yes, and I intend to do so next week, because that's what I think you ought to do. But that's that's the kind of thing that blocks us from getting access to the inner teacher. So again, in the Quaker community, there are there are disciplines like the Clearness Committee that people can, if, if they're willing to take the time and trouble to learn them and all the detail that goes into them, um, that people can use in the context of their own lives, wherever they may be living those lives. And I know I've worked with churches over the last 25 years that now offer clearness committees as an alternative to, um, uh, to uh, pastoral counseling, N not a replacement for it, but another way to go when someone in the congregation has an issue that, that fits the clearness committee process. If I could just say a word about this in terms of religious communities, it's always been interesting to me and, and frankly saddening or discouraging to me that when, when someone in a congregation has a problem there's, there's typically only one thing to do with it, and that is to make an appointment to see the pastor, uh, to close the door on the office uh, as the two of you talk, um, and to be assured that, that way of confidentiality around the problem that you're bringing. Um, the, if you flip that over and ask, what kind of message is being delivered to the, to the community by that, by that being the sole avenue of dealing with important personal issues, you know, the message is the community can't be trusted. You have to hand it over to the professional um, to, to get anywhere at all. And, and while the clearness committee is, is not for all people and all problems, there, there are some people who are too fragile for it, and there are some problems that are too fraught with complexity for it. Um, it still is a process that applies to many, many kinds of problems. Um, people struggling with issues with their kids, 
people struggling with vocational decision making, et cetera. It's, it was people struggling with their own sense of calling, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. the, the Quaker community has tools of that sort that anyone can use. And just a quick parenthesis, without trying to sell any books here, I, I wrote a book called A Hidden Wholeness, which has a lot of these practices spelled out in some detail. And there's a whole chapter on the conduct of, of clearness committees that some of your listeners might be interested in. Mm -hmm. I, I also want to... Um sort of have a testimony here. Um, I, I remember once I was on a retreat and you were leading a retreat and there was about, uh, I think 40 of us and uh, one whole day, half of one day and a half of the next day was dedicated to one experience of the clearness committee. And mm -hmm. uh, you and your associates, they, you, you went to a great length to prepare us. Uh, it took so much learning and so much uh, reflection to come to a right place to actually not to be the the, the, the person uh, asking the question but uh, not the person in the center but but just participate as one of the as one of the people in the committee uh, and I remember it was it was on a on the west coast it was snowing and it was snowing so hard and we all walked uh, from our building where we were meeting to a particular home where we will have that. And it was um, sort of like a pilgrimage uh, back to ourselves in some way, back to, mm. back to trusting ourselves, back to trusting uh, our love for one another, our confidence in one another. And so we came there and, uh, and questions started going and it was just quite, quite, um, it was one of these places in between two worlds, you know, how, mm. how Irish says like a thin place between yeah. this world and the other. Right. Uh, and it, it was, it was, uh, just so rewarding to be part of that. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to this, just Google clearness committee or, or, or order, um, hidden wholeness. And you can adapt that, um, in one way or another uh, in a responsible way, because it's very powerful spiritual technology i would say well, thank you I'm, that, that's a wonderful story and i'm grateful to hear it and i'm really glad samir that you emphasized the, the careful preparation that we always do because th this is a process as you just suggested in which people make themselves very vulnerable and um we, you know we sort of have a hippocratic we we have a hippocratic oath in our work the equivalent of it which is do no harm and um, you want to really, really know what you're doing with the clearness committee. To, to, the way I put it is to create safe space for the soul to speak its truth and for people to, to you know, learn what it means to follow the soul's imperatives. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, we're just very happy to have had you on today and, and uh, looking forward to sharing this with the world. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to meet you this way, Frank, and Samir, always a pleasure to reconnect and chat with you. Mm -hmm.